Judges chapter 10. Now, one of the sort of key doctrines of the Christian faith is the importance of personal conversion. So historical Christianity has long stressed the importance of personal change. Now, the biblical word for this is being born again. We learn of this most clearly in John chapter 3. Nicodemus turns to Jesus and asks him, What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus responds, You must be born again. Now, the theological word expressing that same sort of reality is the word regeneration. And in both regeneration and the sort of phrase being born again, it's stressing the exact same truth, the same sort of reality. That in order to be saved, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, a person must be transformed. There needs to be a change. There needs to be a sort of conversion. But therein lies a problem. Change is hard. Sometimes it almost feels impossible to change. We try and we try to be more patient with our relationships, our friendship, at work, our marriages, our children. We try to be more patient only to see our anger flare up when things don't go our way. We try and try to change our viewing habits online, but then we see something and we click on it and we realize that we didn't change at all. We try and try to put our vices behind us. We try to manage our vices, to hide them. We, we promise God that we won't do it again. We say we'll, we'll be more radical. We'll, we'll get more accountability. We, we promise God pretty much everything short of the world. But time and time again, we fall short. Deep down, we know that so often we fail to change. Now, there's a sort of slogan, a a saying that explains this sort of thing, and it's this. History has a, a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? Now, this morning, we're going to consider that very sort of tension. What happens when you try to change? When you try and you try and you try and you try and you try only to fail and fail and fail to change? What happens when history seems to constantly repeat itself in your life? Well, the text this morning reminds us that history does repeat itself. And particularly in our text, history repeats itself in three parts. We're going to look at them. First, we're going to look at our great need, which is salvation. Second, we'll look at our great threat, God. And then third, our great hope, which is mercy. So if you will look at the first five verses with me, starting in chapter 10 of the book of Judges. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Toa, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died, 
and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jer the Gileanite, who judged Israel twenty-two years. And he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Hovath-Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Kaman. We'll stop there. In verse 1, we're reminded of the sort of era we're in. Chapter 10 reminds us that we're in the days of Abimelech. And if you remember from last week, you'd know that those weren't good days, were they? They were evil days, dark days. It was almost as if at the closing of chapter 9 of the book of Judges, the the, the sort of tone, the feel of the book, almost as, as if it's almost pitch black darkness. But here, starting in verse 1, the lights slowly turn on. There's a glimmer of hope, isn't there? In these five verses, we read of two judges. And we've seen this before, haven't we? God sends judges to Israel to rescue them. Now the first, if you look at it in verse 1, is Tola, son of Pua, from the tribe of Issachar. And we learn very few things about him. We learn that he judged for 23 years and that he died in a city named Shamir. And honestly, where that city is, no one really knows. That's pretty much all we know about Tola. Then in verse 3, we're introduced to another judge, Jer, from the tribe of Gad, who judged for 22 years, one year short of Tola. But here we learn a few more details. We learn a little bit about his family. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, overseeing some 30 cities. The the cities were named after the father. Hovath Jer basically means villages of Jer. Now, although there aren't many details about these two judges, there is something that we learn by its absence. In these two judges, for the first time, we don't read of a military battle going on. There's no foreign nation listed that these judges saved Israel from. There's no reference to a battle, a king, a foreign nation, nothing. And yet, verse 1, we read that Tola saved Israel. So who did Tola save Israel from? All the other uh, judges saved, saved Israel from various foreign nations. But who in the world did Tola and Jer save Israel from? Well, I think the silence of chapter 8 is answered loudly in chapter 9. The reason that there is no foreign nation listed in these five verses is because Israel was saved from itself. That's what Tola and Jer saved. They didn't save them from foreign nations. They saved them from themselves. What this reminds us is, is, is that in the days of Abimelech were the days of evil times when there was a sort of friendly fire. Evil was against evil. Darkness burned bright. Israelite began killing Israelite. 
And so God raises up two judges to save Israel from herself. We see here the theme of God saving a people because of their own sin. Which is really a, a pretty common theme in the Bible. We see this time and time again. I th- and I think, in many ways, the, the clearest book that we see this in, in the, is the book of Exodus. So in the book of Exodus, God saves Israel from Egypt. They're enslaved to Egypt, and it's pretty obvious that they need delivering from that foreign nation. And so God delivers them. And then when they get to the wilderness, Moses goes up on a mountain to talk with God, and the rest of the people of God are down, twiddling their thumbs, bored, waiting for Moses to come down the mountain. They start thinking, well, there was internet back in Egypt. There's all these sorts of things to do. We're we're just sitting around. There's nothing to do. And so they turn to Moses' right-hand man, Aaron, and say, can we have some fun? Can can you build us an idol? To which he does. And then they ask, "Can, can, can you throw kind of a frat party? To which they do. And when God learns of this, when God and Moses, God sends Moses down to confront this action. And it's at this point that Aaron and the people of God learn a very, very sobering message. Egypt wasn't their only problem. Egypt wasn't their only enemy. The enemy at that moment was actually themselves. Now, I assume that most of us believe that we need to be saved, that we need to be rescued. But what do you need to be saved from and rescued from? Do you need to be saved primarily from others' sin, others' injustices, other, other people's behavior that is affecting you? No, no, don't be wrong, right? Don't get me wrong. There are lots of things outside of ourselves that we need to be saved from. And yet, spiritually speaking, because of our sin, our biggest problem is ourselves. Now, so often we know that. That's the Sunday school answer. But do we live that? In any sort of conflict resolution that I've witnessed, regardless of what it was, I have never sat trying to untangle this sort of thing when I, when I ask, okay, so what's the problem? I've never ever seen someone say, I'm the problem. It's always, they're the problem. I might have 5% of the problem, but 95% is on them. But that's not how the Bible frames the discussion, does it? The Bible says to take the log out of our own eyes prior to taking the speck out of our brother or sister's eyes. The Bible frames our salvation like this. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, he wrote this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this phrase, of whom I am the foremost. I mean, just think of all that Paul experienced at the hands of other people. Paul Paul was beaten. Paul was unjustly imprisoned. He, he was mocked. He was made fun of. He was robbed. I mean, just think of all the injustice that came upon him amongst all people. He should be standing there saying, no, it's you who I'm saved from. 
And yet as he thought about the gospel, as he thought about what he was saved from, he said, actually, I'm saved primarily from myself. Paul thought of himself as the chief sinner, the greatest sinner, the worst sinner. So next time you're in conflict with a spouse or with a coworker, with a friend, it doesn't really matter. Look at yourself first. How did you cause this? What do you need to repent of? Conflict always brings out our own problems, our own failures, our own things that we need to repent of. And so what we learn in many ways in this is that all throughout time and history is this constant, repeated history lesson that the biggest problem in our lives, our greatest need, is that we need to be saved not from things outside of ourselves. We need to be saved from ourselves. That's our great need. And so as we look at these two men, Tola and Jer, they remind us that we need a Savior, but a Savior far greater than them. A a Savior like Jesus Christ, God himself who took on flesh to save sinners, even the worst of sinners, by dying on a cross. So that's the first history lesson that we get. We have a great need. It's to be saved, saved from ourselves, saved from our own sin. But then second, there's a second lesson. We, we have a great threat, and the threat might not be what you think it is. Go to verse 6 with me. We'll read to verse 15. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, from the Sidonians and also the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will not save you no more. Go and cry to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you in the time of distress. We'll stop there. Now we've seen this again, haven't we, in the book? The word again reminds us of that reality. And yet verse 6 is pretty shocking. This is the worst description up until this point of Israel's idolatry. 
Previously, it just says, and then they committed apostasy. They served other gods. Here, they're listed. Seven different gods are listed that the people worshipped and served. And so, verse 7, God's anger burned. God's wrath for the sin of idolatry came upon Israel. We've seen this again. And so God raised up the Philistines and he raised up the Ammonites to enslave them. Two nations this time. A sort of double oppression. And this happened for 18 years. And just look at how it's described. They were brutally oppressed and crushed. Verse 8. They were shattered. Israel's world was breaking apart. Well, verse 10, the people of God cried out to the Lord. Seen this before again. And they confess their sin, they confess their idolatry, and they beg God to save them. And then the Lord responds in verse 11, and he gives them a history lesson, doesn't he? He like goes through the time, he lists different nations in which God had saved his people from. Time and time and time again, he said, I saved you from them and them and them. Pretty much every ite God saved them from. And then he says, and yet, every time I save you, you, you go back and run to other gods. And so in light of this history lesson, God says two things in verse 13. It should send shivers down all of our bones. God says, I... I'm done. I'm going to save you no more. And then he says, if you want to talk to someone, if you want to cry to someone, go talk to your other gods. Maybe they can help you. I'm through with you. That's how verse 14 ends. It's as if the Lord had had heard their song and dance so many times that finally he just said, that's it. God's patience seems to be exhausted. God here isn't impressed with their pious confession, their their sort of religious ritual. Israel had a fickle, fickle, shallow religion. They, They sort of were treating God like a storm shelter, right? The storm comes. And you go and find your shelter and refuge in that storm shelter. And so the Philistines are coming. The Ammonites are coming. And so, oh, now we need God. We're going to treat him like our storm shelter. We're going to run to him for safety. But when the storm goes, when we're delivered from the storm, well, we won't need God very much anymore. But God's not a storm shelter. God's not even the storm in this And God knows that Israel just quickly will go back to her other gods once they're saved. You could think of it this way. Israel is sort of spiritually manipulating God. They're just using God. They're in a bind. And when you're in a bind, you reach out for someone for help. And in this case, like many other cases, they're just reaching out for God for help. 
uh, about a decade ago, I was uh, a campus minister with the Navigators. And if you're not aware of this, one of the things you have to do is you have to raise your, your pers- you have to personally fundraise your salary. And in order to do that, you, you talk to your friends in different churches and, and ask them to financially partner with you in ministry. And I remember one time I called a particular friend and I said, hey, can we talk? I, I want to talk about what, what's going on at Oregon State University and, and the Navigators. And I want to see if you'd consider financially partnering with us once again in ministry. And there was sort of a silence on the phone. And he said, um, yeah, I'll pray about it. I'll consider it. He said, the problem is, I feel like the only time you call me is when you want money from me. It was one of the most brutal and hard conversations I ever had. He, he, in many ways, he was right. And yet, what we would never do to a friend, we so often do to God, don't we? We just say, uh, I'll talk to you when I need you, when I'm in a bind, when I'm in need of help. But when things are going good, well, I don't need you as much. And in this section, we read that God, in one sense, threatens them. You see, in in these, like, ten verses, there's lots of threats, right? There's the threat of the Philistines and the Ammonites. There's the threat of their own idolatry. There's the threat of their sort of cheap repentance. But those are all just small threats. The biggest threat in this chapter is God himself. That God's not going to save them anymore. God's through with them. Go cry to your other gods. History has a way of repeating itself. This happened in the flood, if you remember. It almost happened in the wilderness. And now it looks like in the book of Judges, God is done with Israel. Now, what's described here is a sort of tendency that maybe we all have which is to get so accustomed to God's mercy and his grace and his salvation that we begin to trivialize it, to take it for granted. I mean, after all, isn't God in the saving business? Right? And isn't isn't the model simply this? You just throw up a few words of repentance and out comes salvation. I know it's sin, I know I shouldn't do this, but God will forgive me. God has to forgive me. It's sort of his job, right? I'll say I'm sorry later. Well, when we say these sorts of things, when we believe these sorts of things, one, one thing is most assuredly true. What we're doing is we're trying to put God into a box. We're trying to domesticate God. Because in many ways, we're uncomfortable with this sort of God. We're uncomfortable with the God who says, yeah, I'm done. I'm done with you. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? There's, there's something unsafe about this God, isn't there? We're troubled with it. So, so in order for us to be more safe, in order for us to, to feel more at ease when we think about God, we, we try to domesticate him. 
We think God is like us, only just a lot better. So God is, God, we have love, so God just has a lot of love. Or God is merciful, so God just has a lot of merciful. Or, or, or we're kind, so God just has a lot of kindness. That's the way we think about God. But God is not a bigger, better version of you. And if you do think that, then all you're doing is just creating God in your own image. And we know that is just a form of idolatry. No, the God in the Bible, in contrast, is a different type of being altogether. God is being itself. There is no God like him. God's in a class of his own. An early church father put it this way, God is someone than whom none greater can be described. He's perfect. He's the perfect being. So often in church history, when we're uncomfortable with these, God, with these sorts of texts, we try to take an eraser or scissors to him and say, well, God can't be like that. And yet God is like that. We so much want to make a God in our own image. And so we, we seek to domesticate God. We try to make him safe and more comfortable for us because we think that will make us more at ease. And what we learn is that you can't do that. You can't domesticate God. One place we see this really clearly is in a, a, a children's story. In C.S. Lewis, he makes this exact same point in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Susan asks Mr. Beaver about the Aslan, about the lion Aslan, all right? Who's the sort of Christ-like figure in the story. And Susan asks this question, is Aslan safe? And then she says, I, I would feel very, rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says this, Safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. Lions aren't safe. I, I hate to break this to you, but I'm pretty sure you can't domesticate a lion. And God isn't safe either. And you can't domesticate God. Jesus isn't our homeboy, as the old t-shirts went. What we need to realize is that in the same way that Jesus, that, that God can't be domesticated, is in the same way that we see this in our text. There are some things that are, make us a little uncomfortable, and yet it's meant to make us uncomfortable because God is altogether different than us. God isn't safe. He's the sort of being that anyone who has come in real, true contact with him has thought that they would die. All of us would do well to consider that. In light of the reality of this undomesticated God, we do well to realize that we should be warned and be very, very careful when we think about our sin. As the old Puritans would say, those who think best are those who think worse of sin.
Now, in Lewis's story that I mentioned earlier, I left out the end of the quote. Mr. Beaver tells Susan that, of course, Aslan isn't safe. But then he says this, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And that's what we learn in this, these last few verses. God's goodness manifested in his mercy. So what we're going to see is this history lesson, that our great hope is God's mercy. Look at verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. In verse 16, we see hope, and we also see God's heart. God becomes impatient with their suffering. Another translation says, God could bear Israel's suffering no longer. Now, in verse 15 and 16, it looks like Israel is repenting. They, they put away their gods. They say sorry. So it looks like God's mercy is attached to their repentance. I don't think that's what's going on here. Well, for one, they've done this before. Time and time again, they say they're sorry. They put away their gods only to go back to their gods after the judge dies. And not only that, but I think there's a textual reason why I don't think what we're reading here is repentance. The text does not connect God's mercy to them with their repentance. It doesn't say, and God was merciful to them as they repented. That's not what we read in verse 16. The verse connects God's mercy with their misery. Which, let me just add, is so good. It's so important. This is perhaps the greatest news that any of us could ever hear. Because what this means is that though importance, though repentance is important, it's very, very important. Don't get me wrong. But what this means is that our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance. Our hope resides in the intensity of God's mercy. God doesn't wait for us to be perfectly repentant until he showers us with his mercy. No, our hope is that God will be merciful even when we don't repent perfectly and exhaustively. I think sometimes we can put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect that it can become spiritually crushing. And we think, am I good enough? Am I clean enough? Am I devout enough? Did I pray hard enough? Did I read my Bible well enough? And sometimes in that sort of anxious panic, we start to pack our schedule with all these religious activities, thinking that those things, those activities, will, will, will get God to notice us. I think often we think of God and our relationship with God like prom. Stay with me for a sec. We have to get all cleaned up, put on our best attire, and when we do that, finally God will notice us. 
and like us and love us and be merciful to us. But that's not the order of salvation that we see here in this text. We can't clean ourselves up enough. We can make some moral improvements, don't get me wrong. We just can't make enough moral improvements. I mean, history teaches us that. In many ways, that's the bad news. The good news is that God's mercy to us doesn't depend on our spiritual report card. Actually, the opposite. You could think of it this way. God doesn't save men and women who think that they have A's on their spiritual report card. God saves men and women who think they have F's on their spiritual report card. People with A's don't need help. People with F's definitely need help. God's mercy comes to the undeserving. That's what we see here. I wish I could say, this is why God was merciful to Israel. It's because, you know, next chapter, no, there's, there's like no legitimate logical reason for why God is merciful. God is merciful because he's merciful. I have no idea. He just is. And in here, he just lavishes his mercy on Israel, even when they have the same song and dance, even when they try to use God, even when they try to manipulate God, even when they don't re- really repent, God still is merciful to them. You know, we, we, we learned earlier that God isn't, you can't domesticate God. You can't like put God on a leash. You can't put him on a, in a box. And yet, Look at one of the undomesticated attributes we see. Just mirrored with that, that severe, sovereign, big God is God's mercy. They go together. We see God suffering with his people. And we see it all throughout the Bible. I'll give you just one illustration, an example. Isaiah 63 verse 9 states that, In all Israel's distress, God, too, was distressed. God is merciful in that he suffers with his people, which is amazing. And it would be enough if God suffered with his people. But let me tell you this. It's not just that God suffered with his people. The amazing thing is that God suffers for his people Jesus on the cross comforts sinners. But that comfort comes not primarily because he's a great example to us. It's because he's a great substitute for us. Jesus suffers for us when he, when he takes on our sin and he dies in our place. Jesus would suffer the wrath of God for sin. And then in his death and in his resurrection, he removes our sin. Jesus suffers hell to pardon us from hell. Jesus suffers judgment so that we can find salvation. Jesus suffers all of these things. Why? To shower us with mercy. I don't know the exact reason why he's merciful. It's just an extension of his love and his goodness and his character. So if you want to see the mercy of God, if you want to see God suffering with his people and then also God suffering for his people, 
Well, we see a glimmer of it in chapter 10. We see the full picture of it in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. History has a way of repeating itself. And when we say that, what we also mean is that we should learn from history. And the history lesson that we learn today is this. That we have a great need. And it's to be saved from our own sin. The second lesson we learn is that we have a great threat. And it's God. Because of our sin and because of his holiness, our great threat is God himself. But we have a great hope. And that's that God in Christ is merciful. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are gracious that though so often history has a way of repeating itself in our own lives, we're grateful for the reminder that you save sinners. We thank you for that reality and we pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen.